Hello, everybody. This is Christine Passarella. I am the host of the podcast, Beauty, Love, and Justice. The idea for my podcast came from my column, Beauty, Love, and Justice, Living a Coltranian Life on All About Jazz. I bring to you people who I believe are living a Coltranian life, genuine, courageous, and full of love, just like John Coltrane's Love Supreme would want us to do. So today I have sort of an amazing way coming together within the spirit and vibrations of John Coltrane, public intellectual genius and good friend Cornel West. I also have with me Rob Johnson, who is an acclaimed economist and the president of the Institute of New Economic Thinking. And um, we are collaborating with my kids for Coltrane work going, going forward, trying to help the youth of America. And I'm thrilled to meet John Sinclair, who's a poet, artist, and um, quite legendary. Um, John and Rob come out of Detroit. So um, I was wondering if we could start with uh, that connection. Um, John, perhaps you'd like to say a few words about your beloved Detroit and um, your feelings about coming out of Detroit and how that shaped you. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, bless you, bless you, bless you. Ah, um, um, um. <laughs> Cornell Flint, I'm a native of Flint, Michigan. I came into Detroit in mm -hmm. 1964, and I'd been a frequent visitor to visit the Jazz Emporia of the Minor Key, the Drome Lounge and during after hours joints for quite some years as a young youth. Mm -hmm. I moved here to go to graduate school at Wayne State University in 1964. And your, uh, your connection to the music of Detroit, did the, did the music of Detroit shape you as well? I know as a little girl, I didn't realize how much the music of Detroit shaped me. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to that. I know it shaped Rob for sure. Cornell, of course. Well, you know, Detroit was the second city of bebop. It was bigger in Detroit than in Los Angeles or Chicago, mm. even though we were a smaller city. Even then, though, we were the fifth largest city in the U.S. Wow. And uh, a huge stream of creative musicians emerged out of Detroit during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. In fact, in the Coltrane organization, you found Elvin Jones holding down the drum chair. He is from Pontiac, Michigan. Um, so I was influenced very much by this and also by rhythm and blues and blues. That's what I grew up on listening to on the radio from when I was about 12 years old. Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Elmore James. B.B. King, Ray Charles, Amos Milburn, Winoni Harris, ad infinitum. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I know that, um, Rob, would you speak to that as well? Uh, your love of rhythm and blues and how Detroit shaped you, uh, the music? I, I believe your father was a physician. Do I have that right? My dad was a physician. Uh, he was also a jazz pianist. 
and had his own band, played in a lot of the different clubs and hotels and the like. And in his medical practice at times, he had patients like Barry Gordy and Marvin Gaye. I uh, encountered this gentleman named John Sinclair when my father would not drive me down to the Rainbow Room. And so I got on the bus. He did let me take the bus. And I went down there because uh, Roosevelt, Sykes, Lafayette, Leakes, and Willie Dixon were playing. And I walked up to the door. Bill. And, the, and the guard at the door said, you can't come in. You're too young to drink. I said, I don't want to drink. I want to listen to the, I want to listen to the blues. And so I kind of was pesky and what have you. And then a little bit later, this guy, big guy with curly hair comes out and he kind of gave me the equivalent of a, uh, a blues quiz. And then I got admitted. <laughs> and I found out that the man who gave me that quiz was John Sinclair. But the funniest line was, he said, what's your name? I said, Robert Johnson. He said, oh, I'm Sun House. (laughs) 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 So I started getting a taste of the blues through the Rainbow Room. It wasn't long before John and his then wife, Lenny, inspired me to read the, what I will call the counterculture textbook of America, which was the recommended readings and listenings at the back of his book, Guitar Army. And I was off to the races where there was all kinds of, you know, Ornette Coleman and Archie Shep and John Coltrane and everything in, in that place. And I'd, I'd heard things like kind of blue. And I mean, I knew what, that, who John Coltrane was, but I hadn't gone into kind of the free jazz dimension. And I hadn't read anything about Mao and arts and politics or any of these other things until <laughs> the John Sinclair catalyst caught fire between my ears. And, uh, but I, I will also say that there, there's another dimension to this. And I know, John, uh, we've talked about when you're walking around Detroit, and I'm talking about 1967, 71, that kind of window, and you've got an anti war movement, you've got riots that have taken place, uh, Martin Luther King's death three weeks to the day after he spoke at the place I would go to high school, gave his speech, The Other America. Uh, When you're seeing the turmoil of what they call the stress voice, stop the robberies, enjoy safe streets, which was like a vigilante vigilante law enforcement. When you're seeing all of this cauldron, not to mention with the declining auto industry and the depression of some of my parents' friends and things like that, how about the million white people that moved out? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and, 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 absolutely. And, but you got all this going on. And it's like the words aren't telling you the truth. <laughs> and you're trying to figure it out in the newspaper. You're trying to figure it out as a kid. And I, I, I'll take you back to my own home. I'd come home from sports practice. My dad would be playing the piano. My mom would be in the kitchen. She would have been a choral singer with the Detroit Symphony. She worked with them on development later on. But she'd be singing along. And I'd sit at the top of the steps after cleaning up from sports practice, and I could hear whether they were getting along. I could listen to my father's left hand, and I knew, can I ask for money? Can I talk about a bad report card? Or you know, I, So I got truth from music not from words. <laughs> and so I just kept looking for it and it was, it was flowing in Detroit. 
it was flowing. I mean, from Barbara yeah, Lewis everywhere. right on up in, uh, how would I say, what's going on in Marvin Gaye and what have you. So I felt this groundedness, like all hell's breaking loose. And these, and these folks are talking about it. You know, ball of confusion, all that stuff just flowed through me. And I've always trusted more music more than I've trusted words. And but Detroit, Detroit was that correspondence between what was frightening and needed to be explained and what resonated through a certain mode of communication. And, uh, and, and it, how they say, it kept urging me to go deeper and deeper and deeper. So how did I say, ended up, ended up at the Love Supreme. It was a pretty nice pot of gold at the end of my rainbow. <laughs> wow, that's 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 incredible i i just get so excited because i think about my little girl self in the 60s in brooklyn you know not having people to educate me necessarily about the blues or, or motown and yet um i absorbed the music and it educated me and I, I got deeper and deeper into the black culture and that's the music i listened to so it's it's very exciting to um hear that organic essence that those vibrations just spread all over the world. Cornell you, had to find, you had to find out for yourself, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, there wasn't some way John. to find out. You had to find out for yourself. You had to That's investigate. Right. That's right. And, and, and I'm still always learning. And um, it's pretty incredible journey. Cornell, do you want to speak about the music coming out of Detroit before we... we oh, sure, sure. Well, I want to begin by saluting you. Well, Christine, that your magnificent work with Kids for Coltrane, and you've been a marathoner at this genuine Coltranean freedom fighter and justice seeker. And then my deep blues brother, brother Rob, I mean, good yeah, God. I, I second that emotion. I second oh, that emotion. You second that, yeah. We, we on the same wavelength in a magnificent way. This first time I get a chance to spend time to set eyes on Brother Sinclair. Been reading about you with the White Panthers, man, and I saw you on the hash bash talking about jazz and blues and spirituals and things and your work, so it's just a beautiful thing. But, of course, we should never forget that Alice Coltrane comes out of Detroit. Yes. So she's one of the, one, one of, one of the grand figures in the tradition that, that we're talking about. See, for me, Detroit has always been the cultural capital of black people in terms of the first major encounter of the rich Southern culture emerging in an industrial order, undergoing proletarianization, undergoing urbanization, and at the level of popular culture, because you got genius all over. I mean, you know, you got genius in New York, it's in Pittsburgh, especially Chicago and Mississippi, oh Lord. But, but it's Detroit that you get the crystallization of it. And for me, it really begins in some ways with the uh, the church life. You see, the biggest album Amen. sold to black people was The Eagle Stirs the Net by Reverend C.L. Franklin, the father of oh, yeah. Aretha. And he was a genius in his own right. On chess records. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> I had the 78. <laughs> that's exactly right. He had Hartford Memorial Baptist Church. You see, with, 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 Leander, with, with Charles Leander Hill that would go on to Robert Adams that would produce Jesse Norman, that would produce Anita Baker, that, so that you had these church bases. And those are the two, of course, one of the few black preachers that were not bought off by Henry Ford. 
So UAW was actually founded, the local 65 was founded in the basement of Hartford Memorial Church because Leander Hill was one of the few black preachers that refused to take money from Henry Ford. He sided with the union against the ruling class. So you get this magnificent coming together of uh, uh, this Southern black culture over against an industrial order, not just the white supremacy, but the capitalist modes of production, distribution, consumption, and so on. And this explosion, and this is what Barry Gordy picks up on and presents it in popular form, but in terms of even the more deeper uh, uh, forms that are highly invisible in the eyes of most people in Detroit, which is a church life with the marginal jazz clubs and so forth, mm -hmm. spilling over. And we ain't even got to the League of Revolutionary Black Workers yet with, with General Baker and the others who provide a certain <laughs> kind of radical. You remember General? Daryl Mitchell and Ken Cochran and Shirts Sheila Murphy. Shirley Murphy. These are all of my comrades that we went to jail with and so forth. And, and, and of course, you never forget these folks. Nelson Perry founded the Communist Labor Party, the only Communist Party that was all black. That's all Detroit, you see. That's all Detroit. So that this rich history that's there, and then it spills over. So vanilla size of town, chocolate size of town. Then soon you had Latinos coming in later on and so forth. A lot of people don't recognize just how multidimensional Detroit was at the very late industrial capitalist moments. Mm -hmm. Now, once financialization takes over, once deindustrialization takes over, you know, Detroit becomes not a ghost town, but it's devastated, shattered, and it's a different kind of place, it seems to me. Hell yeah. <laughs> Rob, do you want to speak to that, or John, do you want to follow up on Cornell's very what deep Rob comments? What Rob, Rob, do you want right, to I'll have... I'll give it a go. I think there's, uh, what Cornell is talking about is the kind of what you might call the turmoil, the pain, and the churning of people's lives being transformed, not by their choice, right. but uh, in a kind of uh, cold-hearted adaptation. And why is that cold-hearted adaptation interesting in Detroit? Well, we had a thing called the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And we had a city that was a black majority city and had uh, black governance, people like Coleman Young as mayor. Coleman so now, Young came out of the black labor movement. Right. He did. So now you've got a situation. You've got a situation. And this is what I'm, I'm really getting at, why the pain is so acute, is that Detroit was divorced by the United States of America. Right. Mm. It was allowed to Run go out. through the ground. <laughs> And what happened was white representatives in the Democratic Party in the South could not support transferring assistance and support to majority black northern cities. It, no was, it was suicide and it hogtied. And I, I, years later, I knew people like Don Regal and Carl Levin because I worked in the United States Senate. And reflecting back, they just knew that you couldn't touch help in Detroit. And so it was exposed to that rawness and, and went in through the Reagan era and it just kept going and going and going. I remember when the 2008 financial crisis- We had John Engler. That's right. 
But I, I, I remember 2008 financial crisis. The, the house prices never had a bubble. And then they collapsed. Yep. And everybody's saying to me, well, wait a minute, we didn't have this stuff like New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. And, and at some level, the bubble you had is that you didn't have a deeper depression earlier. Well, yeah, what, what, the, what I always thought was the problem with that was that they always thought the white people were going to come back. So they maintained the all the infrastructure, the schools, the police stations, the fire departments. They uh, supported those for 40 years after they were non-functional. Yeah. But they, and the other problem you have... Sucked a lot of money out, of which there wasn't very much money to begin with. The other thing that's problematic in the Detroit challenge, and this, this is objective, the, because it was an automotive-based city, the footprint, the geographic footprint, the size of Detroit was huge. You can put all five boroughs of Manhattan and a lot more inside that geometry. So when the thing starts to contract, I think it's 180 you, you don't have enough scale to support a school system or hospitals or anything in any particular right. pocket, and the whole thing starts to flow in on itself, and we it saw- a long that. time, though. Yeah, oh, it was slow motion, but it was painful motion. Absolutely, all the way. Every inch was painful. But I love the way you put that, though, Brother Rob, about the divorce, you know? Because when I was coming along, one of the things that we associated with Detroit was the fact that in the summer of 67, the same summer that Brother Coltrane died, that Detroit had a rebellion where the brothers and sisters were holding off the repressive apparatus of the nation state uh, for days and days. And it was like, good God. We thought Detroit, we were going to win. It was. Oh, no. We thought we were going to win. Lord, <laughs> Lord. But tell us, tell us about that summer of 67, brother. We thought we were going to win. We thought when that thing jumped off and it sustained itself for several days, and one day they came on the TV and they said, the 10th precinct is pinned down by sniper fire. And we thought that was going to be it. We thought we were on the winning side. And then the tanks rolled in. <laughs> and the tanks came in. Was out, I was out by Ultra Road. There was seven precincts. Is that right? You were there, Brother Rob, right there in that yes. summer? Yes, I was there. I was 10 years old. My father, my father, the doctor, tied a white T-shirt onto the antenna of his car, like a you know surrender flag. And right. he went downtown and worked in the emergency room. He stayed up, he you know, gave us a call every few hours. But he stayed at Henry Ford Hospital emergency room doing his medical work in, at that time. I'm at home. At the time, I'm an apprentice paper boy, and the guy says, you can't deliver papers in the morning. There are too many people sitting in windows with guns, and if they just mistake, they'll shoot you. So I'm not delivering the free press. I was a deputy. I was in training to become a paper boy. But I'm sitting there, and I know that there was a place called the Cinderella Theater on Jefferson Avenue. There were snipers on top of it, and they had pinned down the 7th Precinct across Jefferson Avenue that the police couldn't come out of the building or they get shot until they brought the helicopters in yeah. and they took those guys out on top of the theater. I'm watching this whole drama. I'm hearing gunfire and then uh, tanks and sandbags at Ultra Road and Jefferson come in big time. 
And how do I say, I didn't know how to explain it. I was 10 years old, but man, it was, it was something else. It was not, it was no picnic. <laughs> you had over 40 folk died, all right? Over 40 precious human lives were gone, I think. 43, yeah. Yeah. 7,200 people were arrested. 7,200. They were taking them up to Jackson in buses and putting them on the floor of the state penitentiary because they didn't have no cells for them. It was totally out of the question, the whole thing. They were putting them in the bathhouse on Belle Isle. Uh, you know, uh, arrestees. Curfew violators, mostly. Mm -hmm. See, I think that's connected to that attitude of divorcing Detroit. Yeah, absolutely. Very yeah, much so. 43 people that got killed, most of them were killed by the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. John, what connection do you see to all that, to what's going on today in society? Mm. Same old, same old. I think it's same old, same old, except it's now turbo technology weaponized. Yeah. I, think, I think they've ta they taken what they learned about weapons to be used in war, like in the Middle East, and they've turned it on the public now. Now, if you got a bad thought, they could zero in on you for a lot of ways. That's it. Wow, that's a deep point. But I tell you one thing about the difference between Detroit 67 and uh, Minneapolis 2020. And that's true when I was growing up in California, Sacto on the chocolate side of town, mm. that in 67, I don't know of a black person, let alone of a black man, who would just watch the police for eight minutes publicly lynch a young a, a brother. Oh, yeah. You know, if the police going to do it, they better do it quick. Because we ain't going to just stand there and be spectators to watch somebody snuff out a life like that. Mm -hmm. He's, well, then in Sacramento. disposition is different than participatory. Now, once that happened, you got, you know, this massive demonstration. It's a beautiful thing. It's multiracial and so on. But just sitting there watching the, the community, watching this brother right. getting snuffed out like that. That ain't going to happen in Detroit, 1967. No, no. Not for eight and a half minutes, not eight minutes, 46 seconds. No, no. Not in Sacramento or Oakland, either with the Black Panther Party patrolling their ass. That's exactly right, brother. That's exactly right. And that's where I was in Sacramento, right there on Ninth Avenue, Shiloh Baptist Church, where I was shaped. Mark Teamer and the Black Panther Party right down the street. I know my boy Billy. You, Billy, I uh, can't call his name, but he's still active there in Sacramento. Billy X, I think they call him. You know oh, yeah, God, I hadn't thought of him in a long time. He's so active, bro. I met, oh, yeah. I met him in England a few years ago. <laughs> wow, and, and Brother David, I forget David's name, who's Billy's good friend, I can't remember. But I mean, you know, that's 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 not <laughs> 50 some years ago. But there's a different kind of uh, fighting spirit. I think what happens is that the society of spectacle uh, it, it begins to take over. Yeah. And so it's a matter of, you know, what, what is projected, uh, uh, how what is said and what is done travels through Please. the communication on social media and so on. Whereas, see, Detroit, you know, Detroit, 
got that gut bucket <laughs> spirituality that's just deep. You know what I mean? And by spirituality, all I mean is the use of imagination and empathy to authorize a better and different reality than the reality we live in. Yep, always. Always moving ahead. Well, that's where the music came into me because mm. after, after that 67 ride, in the years that it followed, and during the decline that continued in the auto industry, everything I heard coming out of elite media and scholars and everything else was about just Detroit deserved what it got. In other words, what they were doing was they were protecting the American dream because the violence and the velocity of decline in Detroit is enough to scare you about the notion that there is such a thing as a American dream anywhere. And instead of saying Detroit was the beginning with the interaction between economic strife and racial animosity and social discord, which is a leading indicator for now what all these globalized multicultural cities face under stress, they try to anesthetize your concern and say, Detroit had corrupt black administration. It had its own problems. It's entrepreneurs right, lost right. their mojo. They're still saying that shit. Their man. own fault. It was their yeah, own they're fault. They're in the penitentiary for 28 years. But that wasn't you about telling the nothing. truth. That's right. They didn't do nothing. But that's, that's not about telling the truth. No. That's about providing a palliative right. to assuage the conscience and the anxiety of the rest of the country. Oh, really? We and that's part of the divorce, <laughs> Cornell. That's the story that's told. How would you say Cornell uh, overlay? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Christy, another important thing about Detroit, one thing that I learned about Detroit was there was such a courageous willingness of black folk to engage in a genuine critique and indictment of the black bourgeoisie. Yes, yes. There was a class consciousness within black America. So that even when Coleman Young made his move from the left with the National Negro Labor Council into the mayor's office, that we, we, we used to have an organization called uh, Detroit for Rational Economy. I used to go out there every year with, with, with Ken, with Ken and, and Daryl and them. And we used to march against, now we love Coleman because Coleman's been through hell and high water, but he was now part of the mainstream elected official. And you got class consciousness, class conflict within black America right. in a very mm -hmm. serious way. And you could see it in Motown. All of a sudden now, all the confusing what Brother Rob was talking about. All of a sudden now, association with the funk, psychedelic shack, Influenced by the Funkadelics in Parliament, listening to Dyke and the Blazers, listening to the Lakeside and the, uh, uh, and, and the Ohio players. So Motown itself had to respond to this creative energy from below in the Black world because Barry had said no, he wanted just the crossovers. And then when Marvin came out in April of 71 with what's yeah. going on, Barry said, you must be losing your mind. We, you can't put this out. This is too far beyond any of our conception of what Motown does. So you can see that fascinating struggle going on. And it's not just class struggle. It's really a struggle between the truth and folk who are willing to either fake the truth right. or fake the funk. Right. <laughs> That's right. Amen. 
And by the way, Smokey Robinson, in the most recent television documentary about Motown, looks at Barry Gordy and says right to him, the greatest album we ever put out is what's going on by Marvin Gaye. Uh, he had to tell the truth. That's right. He had to tell the truth. Absolutely. He had to tell it. Very much so. Very you know, much you, so. You know, you often say how the music has changed, um, how the, the groups that were, um, were joined together in harmony that brought another level to people, this depth, this music. And we don't, we don't see that. Anymore. Do you think that's connected, like, incrementally, uh, the powers that be, um, it wasn't by accident that we had these uh, singular uh, musicians that aren't joined together and the music that's put out doesn't have that profound truth telling. Um, do, you, do you think it, th that transition happened from that moment on? Yeah, I, well, I think the commodification was always there, but the intensification of the commodification away from struggle, away from resistance, and away from memory and much more to titillation and stimulation, you see. So that, for example, we can just take this back to Coltrane, right? Justice is what love looks like in public and tenderness is what love feels like in private. The tenderness of a voice of a David Ruffin from Why Not Mississippi. Mm. The tenderness of a voice of a Eddie Kendrick from Birmingham, Alabama. See, we don't have that tenderness in black music no more. You gotta go to South Korea to get that. South Korea now has completely appropriated the silky soul of black America. You listen to Urban Sakapa, you listen to NC, it, 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 it's amazing. And, and it's, it's a complete, interesting, creative at times appropriation of the silky soul because the oligarchs in the recording industry and live performance won't allow for black tenderness, black sweetness, black gentleness, black kindness, you see? And that's what love is on a, personal and a personal level, but it's connected to justice when it comes to public life. And so once, so black love has always been a threat to a white supremacist capitalist civilization because black love means you're going to tell the truth, you're going to straighten your back up, you're willing to live, you're willing to die, but you're going to have integrity. Integrity in the way in which the Latin understands it, right? Your whole self and all that you are is put into what you are doing. That's integrity. See, James Brown got integrity. Everything about that Negro genius is there in his music. Coltrane is that same way. You're going to get what I got. And I'm going to empty everything in me in you. Now, of course, it ain't a matter of skin pigmentation. It's a choice that human beings make. You see, And so the best of Black culture has always been that kind of kenosis, that kind of kairos where you freeze everyday chronos and have meaningful moments in time that can transform your life and take you higher and transcend all the mess that you're in. That's what Detroit had. Mm. And there's a tip to flatten it out. Because once you flatten out people's experience of time and history, then they just easily manipulate. You manipulate them. They're just objects and automatons reproduce instant gratification. The present is over and over repeated with no connection to the past, no connection to the future. And here I thought the South Koreans were just listening to Otis Redding sing Try a Little Tenderness. That's way, <laughs> give me a lot more, Carnell. You give me a lot more. Thank you. 
And, and I tell you, it's some of those South Korean artists. I was in Seoul because my, my my daughter was Christy. You no, know, my daughter is uh, majoring in uh, East Asian studies. She speaks fluent Korean. She goes to Korea all the time. And I spend time, and we just go to all the different the dance clubs and everything. And you walk in there, and you think, didn't the Delphonic sing a song? Didn't the Dramatic sing a song? Like did, I thought Enchantment. I thought Main Ingredient. I thought, what? This is fascinating. It, it speaks to um, John, and, and maybe you can speak to this. You know what you brought forth in your youth, and then you, as you uh, went through your journey with uh, MC Five, and I think the Stooges as well, and then it goes into punk rock and all of that. That development, um, allowing young people to see their truth. If we stop it along the way, it doesn't get layered. We don't build on what we created before. So do you think that um, the powers that be saw you as such a threat that that's why they um, imprisoned you and, and John Lennon um, saw yeah, you and got involved and all that? Do you want to speak to that, at, at what you went through, that experience? Well, not any more than I have to. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I was perceived as a threat. Richard Nixon characterized the White Panther Party as the biggest threat to America that they had at the time. We were just a bunch of rock and roll musicians in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We didn't have any idea what we were doing, but we hated America the way it was, and we wanted to change it. And we'd do anything to change it, and we were on acid. So we had no fear. We would do anything that our minds told us to do in our hearts. So we challenged them for quite a few, several years. I did three years in prison, all told. But it didn't really work on their part, you know? Well, you know, it was interesting. I, I was bought the music, the, the music revolution. They bought that off by making them millionaires. Yeah. And if you weren't a millionaire, you couldn't get a record contract, so. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna point the listeners to a beautiful essay there's a book that John Sinclair co-edited called Music and Politics with uh -huh. a man named Robert Levin. And there is a chapter called Motor City Music where John goes into the notion of when a music is local, where it emanates, what you might call it, becomes a portrait painted by the conditions that the artist experiences. And he talks about the contrast between Detroit music and San Francisco music. You know, in San Francisco, the policeman says, hey, can I have a toke on that joint? Uh, in Detroit, they knock you over the head with a club. And, that, and the music takes on a different tone. But John then goes on in this essay and talks about when music becomes a commodity composed for a national market, it starts doing all kinds of tricky stuff and gimmicks and superficial, what I'll call saccharine offerings that are not organic artistic expression, that it's commodities designed to gain market share and the music loses its soul, which was, I know what Cornell yeah. was, was sharing with yes. us. But John wrote yes. this up. I learned this from your words, John. Thank you. I wrote that in prison. Which, 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 which year did that book come out? You all remember? What, what uh, I wrote it in 69. It came out in 71, I think. 
came I'll, out. Okay, right. I'll find it for you. I, I don't yeah, know. It was Jazz and Pop Magazine put it out. Oh, 1970. It's, I've got it right here, 1970. And, that one? Yeah. Well, because I don't know when the book came out, but the Motor City Music chapter was written in 1970 because it says oh, right on the head banner that I'm looking at. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating, Christine. Because I was just listening to uh, the dialogue with Brother Sinclair and Brother Lennon, John Lennon, on the phone and with Yoko on the telephone, too. Uh, it, uh, and that must have been right when you got out of jail, though. Right, right, same night. That the same night? That was 1971? December 13th. 71? Yeah. So this book had already come out then, now? Yeah. Wow. Good a lot of a lot of guitar, a lot of guitar army was written while you were in prison too, was it? Right? Yeah, 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 most of it. Yeah, good God Almighty. John, could you speak to? Um, I saw a photograph of you and John Coltrane. Um, could you speak to your connection to John Coltrane and what he means to you? Well, my connection. I was a fan. I shook hands with him a couple of times. I had no further connection. I went and saw him many, many times live. I mean, he was a god to me. And you wrote a book of poetry called Song of Praise about those feelings, see, do you not? Uh, poetry and prose also, yeah. Yeah, okay. Could I read um, one of the poems? Is that okay? Just take a, John, I'd like to read um, your poem, Serenity. And the quote uh, before uh, your words, it says, I am always searching. I think now that we're at the point of finding. John Coltrane. Coltrane said that. Coltrane said that. And now these are your words. <clears throat> find the world at last and are at one with it. And it's, a, and it's good. There is, no thing, there is nothing to fear. Our peace comes through. Our acceptance our acknowledgement of the ways things are, but that only in only the most contemporary sense as this music is current. I mean, to make use of the contemporary possibilities to do everything you can do, to love the world and its people. They help, they help your help. You are serene with the knowledge, the resolution for pursuance of love in all forms as there is only one form, the total and the sum of yourself is where you can be found. And you are love born human in the world at one with all humans, serene in your skin. We see that in what's going on. We, there's this um, conflict that's going on in, in a love supreme keeps coming, uh, in, in my view, as the answer. Today is also the anniversary of John going into the studio to record Alabama. So that turmoil, that heartache, that pain that John Coltrane felt, but he leaves us, I think, um, and I'd like to hear your opinion, uh, a space where we could also believe that change could happen, love could happen. So I was wondering, John, if you could speak to um, what motivated you to write all of these beautiful things in honor of John? Well, like I say, it was a God to me. 
He was the philosophical leader of my particular circumstance, much as Malcolm X was the political leader. And uh, these two guys exerted a tremendous influence on me and, and created the path that I took in life. I followed them, along with a lot of other musicians. Well, I think we all have, um, what's just a beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. beautiful. But the, just the language itself is so beautiful. Yeah, thanks. It yeah. really is. Because the very notion of, 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 of immersing serenity into principle struggle that right. is visionary right. and also service oriented. And that kenosis that I was talking about, the emptying of the self, it is the, uh, uh, the courageous, sacrificial way of doing it with a smile and with style. I mean, that's the blues. You got that from Coltrane. That's what Coltrane did. No, it's true, but everybody don't understand the depth of Coltrane. He sacrificed the way you did, everything. He was on top of the world. The way, the way you know, the way Christine did, the way Rob did. That's true. That's and you got important. a guy today who's 90 years old, Sonny Rollins. He's still doing the same thing. Oh, we just had Sonny Rollins on the show. Definitely. <laughs> we just talked to Sonny Rollins off the phone. That brother's strong yeah. as ever. Strong as ever. You see him, you listen to him on the tightrope. Right on his birthday, on his 90th birthday, the tightrope podcast, we did a whole hour with Sonny. And he just... Let it flow, brother Sinclair. You, you probably already saw it, huh, brother Rob? I, I, I saw it, John. I'll send it on to you this afternoon. It's just magnificent. It's like it. you said, it's like simple and cuts through to the bullseye over yeah. and over and over again. It's just amazing. It's really, it's, it's. There's our brother right there. There he is. In younger years, <laughs> younger years. And what does he say, Cornell? What did he say to us? What did he say to the podcast listeners as well? Because Cornell and I were blessed to speak to him also on, on a private phone call um, on Coltrane's birthday. Was that right, Cornell? Was yeah, no, yes. And he said uh, uh, that Train was his prophet. Yeah. He said he was my prophet. Isn't that what he said? He was yeah. my prophet. Visionary. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if not just Coltrane, but I, I, I think in so many ways, um, your own work, Brother Sinclair, and the kind of uh, work that Brother Rob does in the context of economics, that's got to be one of the most difficult things in the world, dealing with, you know, the <laughs> uh, discipline like that, but still keep the love, the soul, the justice with all the sophistication. But this notion of uh, uh, the, the poet being the hierophants of unapprehended inspiration, the end of Shelley's great essay, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right, Cornell, when you're getting into the crossfire in the, in the how I say, disgust of watching people play games with arguments and all kinds of what I might call unwholesome things are flying around the room. I like to reach back into a love supreme because it takes me, it takes me to a place of resolve. Out of this, to stay yeah. in the fight and move on beyond. Move on beyond. What you say? Out of this shit and into the real. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And Coltrane, and, and I was listening to the interview with Frank Kofsky, 
and um, he's uh, he's trying to get into what Coltrane is trying to say uh, through his music. And Coltrane is just clear that, well, Cornell, I would I would say I gather that Coltrane viewed himself as a philosopher, and that that music was going to express the truth of what he felt, what he was observing, and in addition, what he would leave to society and we listen to him today and, and we, we, we keep gathering more and more truth. So, um, I, I think that that uh, beautiful essence of Coltrane's Love Supreme can help us, guide us, save us in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. Often, no, I, 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 I think you're right. I think, you know, but, but I think for Coltrane, he, he wisely was suspicious of any labels. Right. You know what I mean? You remember what Chekhov said about the philosophers? The philosophers are like the generals. They're trying to enlist everybody in their army. Be a Platonist. Be an Aristotelian. Be a follower of, of Hegel. Be a follower of Nietzsche. And the Coltrane said, look, I'm a humble man who's in love with his mama, trying to make sense of the world, trying to do the best I can with my craft. I'm a seeker. I'm, I'm, I'm forever in pursuance. So we would say he got philosophical content, philosophia, love of wisdom. But he would say, I, I, I'm just another brother out here trying to, 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 try, trying to make the world a little bit better than I found. And that kind of humility you don't get with philosophy. Right. That kind of humility you don't get with economists. You know what I mean? Not all, but most of them. That's why when you go to the well, you got to listen to Coltrane's song, Wise One. Yeah. It takes, yes, you, yes, it takes yes, you exactly yes. there. It takes you there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's uh, in that interview, he definitely is uh, very humble, but he's very sure of himself. And I think the essence, and he also talks about the pain when um, the critics are attacking him and, and, and trying to. Um, I, well, they identify him as somebody he's not, and it's painful to him, and he's a, a little bit confused, but it's, it's clear that he never lets any of what society says about him stop him. And you're right, Cornell, he's, he's, he's really against the labels, and not just for himself, but for everybody else. Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. No I, mean, I guess, I guess that, that's why we're all drawn to him. Um, I, of course, uh, John is the only one that was blessed to uh, see him uh, play, and it, I, I always find that magnificent, uh, meeting people who actually saw John, and they come out of it, you know, with that feeling of he was a god, he had a message or a love that is very unique, but it's so pure, you know, it's, it, you know, Sonny Rollins talks about, um, you know, how does he live? And, and um, it's due unto others. It's yeah, that golden rule, the golden rule. The golden rule, it seems so simple. And yet we made a mess. Society has made a mess of it. And so, you know, someone like John, Rob, you, Cornell, and uh, what I'm trying to do for the children, we're trying to like start, like maybe reset. How did we get so messed up? It seems like a simple thing to love one another, be kind to one another, share this earth, to appreciate this gift that we have, this life. And um, I, I'm not really sure how it 
become so messed up, but we see it in Detroit. We see it throughout America today. We see it in politics, this divide. And- um, Not our fault. Do you want to speak to that, John? Do you want to uh, elaborate? It's not our fault. We didn't do it. Well, how do we help? Um, well, what do you see about the, what do you feel for the children, John? Because I work with little children. Do you have any advice for me? Um, I might do bring Coltrane to them, which has been very helpful. Um, what How could I reach the little ones? John, I just want to tell you, when I became a little bit acquainted with Christine's work, she and I made a podcast and I said, you're doing heart vaccinations for the children. <laughs> <laughs> the love injection, justice That's injection. It. That's it. Like on low said, you have to grow a heart. You have to grow a heart. People don't have a heart. You have to grow one. You have to teach them what it is. And you have to grow one. They don't have one. They didn't give them one. Mm. No, that's the, and I think Cornell knows too, you know, when kids and, and uh, Rob and I were talking about this the other day, you know, at what age do we bring the work? And I, I think I said to you, Rob, that, you know, I, I witnessed this purity with four, five, six-year-old children that love is definitely there. There's a kindness. It's just this organic way children relate to one another. And yeah, sometimes, of course, there's a problem, you guide them, but they want to uh, fundamentally be kind and then something happens, society starts to make this competition and every, I think that's part of the problem. And uh, they, they grow up in a dysfunctional mode called the family. Right. <laughs> mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think we, if we raise the question though, how did Coltrane get what he got? And he got what he got the way all of us did. <laughs> well, that, but also, Brother Sinclair, he had examples. His grandfather was yeah, a freedom yeah, yeah. fighter who went to jail. Yeah. His mother was somebody who loved him as an only child in such a way that she made him believe in himself. Then he meets Charlie Parker. Then he meets Jimmy Heath. Then he meets Big Mama Thornton, Gene Ammons. So it's the examples. We got to give the young folk examples of moral and spiritual greatness, which is in the form of service to others, which is in the right. form of telling the truth in the middle of controversy and tell them Alexander's not great. Napoleon's not great. The head of the US empire dropping drones is not great. That's not what greatness is. Greatness is in these examples. Right. And Coltrane never forgot those examples. No, never. He never forgot. You all know. I think you all know the story about the, when he moved to uh, when he moved to uh, um, Philadelphia, and he kept blowing his horn all the time in, in the projects. And they're gonna boot he and his mama out of the projects. And he get a little knock on the door, and it was it, and Coltrane was A.M.E. Zion in terms of religion. This was a Black Baptist minister rather than Black A.M.E. Zion. Knock on the door and say, Miss Coltrane, I see they're gonna boot you out because your son blowing the horn. Here, take the keys. So Coltrane, your little John can go in my church and blow anytime he wants. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now you see, there's no John Coltrane without that anonymous black preacher. Yep. You know what I mean? So when he's blowing Love Supreme, this ain't no abstract thing. No. No. He's talking about people who have shaped him at the deepest level of his being. And most people don't know their names. 
Right. Well, try Miles Davis, though. Oh, yes. Miles, Miles made a difference in his life now. Miles, Miles made a difference. I read the intellectual of the 20th century. Train was right up there under his wing. That's exactly right. You are so right there. And but then you got Elvin. You, know, you can't separate him from Elvin Jones. There's a beautiful... Beautiful and Monk too, absolutely. At, at the changing of the guard, where they go on tour for Kind of Blue, Miles begs Coltrane to come with him one last time. And they get to the Olympia Theater in Paris. And Coltrane is supposed to play his part and the audience is quite you know, aware of how Kind of Blue plays out but he takes off. Like now he's his own horse. He's in the giant steps. Now he's in the giant steps. And half the audience, you can hear this in this live recording, are booing and half are cheering. Wow. But Miles says later in an interview, that's, that's when I knew this was our last tour together. Yeah. Uh, wow. It's a beautiful time of parting. Definitely. Miles was, a, Miles was a fabulous mentor. <laughs> fabulous mentor. And, and Coltrane never forgot it. Never never. Yeah, yeah. Never I, wanna, I just want to read Coltrane's words from um, that, actually that same interview with Frankowski. It's in uh, Coltrane on Coltrane. Uh, he says, and I'm just going to jump in at some point. He's asking him about what the music means to him and, and his expression. And he says, this is Coltrane. Well, I tell you myself, I make a conscious attempt. I think I can Truthfully, that music I make or I have tried to make consciously an attempt to change, to change, to change what I found, you see. And in other words, I try to say, well, this I feel could be better. You see, in my opinion, so I will try to do this to make it better. And this is what I feel that we feel in the situation that we find in ourselves. And this is the part. When there's something we feel should be better. We exert an effort to try and make it better. So it's the same socially, musically, politically, in any department of our lives. And he talks about being a force for good, and Frank says in music, right? And he says in all areas, that right. force. So Absolutely. as we close, and uh, it's, it's been, what is that force for good? Um, John, for you, what do you see? And then I'm going to ask you, Rob, and uh, Cornell, how, how do we go, how do you go through life trying to be a Coltranian force for good? Trying to do good. Just do good, just be. Not do bad. <laughs> and how do you have, and, you, and you've had a life of tremendous courage, John, to push against the forces for bad, the evil that Coltrane says, I know there are evil forces. Your life exemplifies uh, tremendous courage that um, pushing against evil, not accepting um, the negative, trying to make the world better. So I congratulate you. Um, I got it from him. I'm from LSD. Square <laughs> <laughs> business. How about you, Rob? What would you say that? Um, is, I, I know we talked yeah. about your ex, your um, 
expertise in economics, but you also are founded in music and in, in, uh, the creative process, and that's really important to you. So how, how do you go through life as a force for good? I think that if I was going to draw a metaphor, I'd say there's a pendulum between love and fear. And what I try to do is nudge, I try to resist my fear and act in a way that is loving. And when I look at those young children in school you're talking about, they have a lot of love in them, but it can be chased out by fear. And so when you inject them with the heart vaccine of Coltrane, which is, uh, how would I say, creating a resilience, creating a, a, a shield for that loving side through the memories, through the things that are planted in the mind. I think of being a Coltranian as being someone who's always trying to remind people that that fear will be overcome with love if they persevere. That's a great message. I, 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 I've witnessed it. I, I see that the young people that I work with and I've said this to you before, um, Rob, that I still have a relationship with some of these students as they moved on into college life. And they, that's what they report back to me, that, that having that foundation of believing in themselves, of, of knowing that they have a responsibility to one another, um, lasts a long time and it's still with them in, as they go out into the world. And, and John, as they unfortunately run into some of that evil, there's a force field around them because they, they do have a foundation. So okay. I agree with you, Rob. How about you? Let me, let me, just, let me just add a little coda to that. You know, I'm very uh, enamored of the movie and the album Amazing Grace by Aretha Franklin. And in the opening song, which is a Marvin Gaye song, Holy Holy, she sings, we have to come together we have to believe in each other's dreams. And it's almost as if she's like, a, she's like the Holy Spirit and we lift off in the spacecraft with her around those words at the beginning of that film. And I think, I think that's a, what you might call another injection into the heart. We have to believe in each other's dreams. She was another spiritual musician. Yes, she was. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Marvin Gaye. Marvin. For that matter. (laughs) And and I think think James Brown's feet. James. James Brown's feet and Bob Dylan's lyrics, they come into that magic zone too. Oh, Lord, yeah. The beautiful thing about all of us is that in our own distinctive and fallible and humble ways, we choose to be love warriors, freedom fighters, and wounded healers. Right. And that's a choice. That's That's it. Integrity, honesty, decency, given who we are. And so they didn't want us to do this. They didn't want it. And and they still don't like it at all. They don't like it at all. So that that line in Sly Stone, sing a simple song. The Sly used to play the organ in my church every fifth Sunday with the uh, mass choir of Northern California. He knew he was Sylvester Stewart then. But when he wrote Sing a Simple Song, and he said, and he has Larry Graham sing, I'm living, loving, over loving. So how do you overcome by over loving? Well, if you over love truth, 
then you're going to bear witness and get in trouble. If you overlove love of beauty, then you're going to use beauty in the face of terror and trauma. If you overlove in goodness, then you're going to have tons of enemies. They're going to try to crush you because so much of the evil and greed and hatred in the world going to come at you, you see? And I think that's what Coltrane helps bring together. How you going to overcome what is in the world and all of its various catastrophes and calamities by overloving truth and overloving beauty and overloving goodness? And for those who are religious, right. overloving a God that teaches you you will be true to me by being true to the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the oppressed, the persecuted, the wretched of the earth, and the language of France. For now, that's how you live your life. Amen. Well, you know, uh, thank you, Cornell, for that. Um, as usual, I, I find you incredibly moving, and you're always teaching me and infusing in me that belief. Uh, yes, uh, it's incredible. Um, I want to thank you for joining me today. And I, I want to end on um, the words of uh, someone I think we all respect. I, I'm not sure if you know his work, John, but I know certainly Rob and Cornell introduced me to this gentleman, uh, James Cohn. And um, this is from his book, said I wasn't going to tell nobody, but he did. <laughs> so this, he's, he's um, referencing a quote from James <laughs> about uh, diversity, human diversity. And uh, I'm just, you know, grabbing this quote from his book. And it says, America has hit the jackpot and doesn't even know it. But we, like Baldwin, need to embrace our diversity with joy knowing that we are stronger and better as a nation when we embrace the weak, the least in our midst. That's what makes me proud to be an American, an African-American. What a blessing. So I will end on James Cohn. I want to oh, a virtual hug. I can't even. Um, <laughs> all of it. All four. All, all, all right. four. Come on in. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a, a miracle for me this day, and I feel Coltrane spirit with us. John, thank you. And, and Rob, I will talk to you soon. Cornell, I send you my love always. Um, uh, I want to I just pay one special tribute to my friend John Sinclair. Sure. I know, I know if I had never met you and listened to you, that I wouldn't have met these other two beautiful people and had such a great friendship. Thank you, John. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's so now, great to see you, brother. It's a blessing. When I talk about the great examples and the great witness bears, brother John Sinclair is one of them in a major right way. On. Right in on. A major way. Now, John Sinclair might be flying a little bit higher in the friendly skies sometimes than I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we own the same love train, justice train, and serving Amen. the least of these. You got it. That's it. Amen. That's it. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Thank Bye. You.